Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Just a little heads up. This week's episode features conversation that explores eating disorders, suicide and sexual abuse. Coming up on this episode of White Wine Question Time. It turns out that I worked in the good old days. It didn't feel like it at the time when I was, you know, I was, I was earning less than the parking meter and I was, you know, working 97-hour weeks and, you know, coming home from every shift covered in, you know, bodily fluids and falling asleep at the wheel. I had the awful realisation that I was, going to, I was going to be sick and this was the wrong house to be sick in because it was like, it was like a museum. So, um, but I thought, you know, I'll go to the toilet and I will put my head deep in the bowl and I will do like a CSI clean-up. What I need is a fake agent. I was spending more time scripting these messages from imaginary agents and coming up with their lives and personalities and character arcs than I was actually doing any, any paid writing. <laughs> Hello and welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is a doctor turned comedian turned best-selling author. You may be one of the three million people in 37 languages who devoured his hilarious, harrowing and very telling memoir about his six years as a junior doctor called This Is Going To Hurt, in which he charted the joyful highs and the gut-wrenching lows of a young, overworked and overwhelmed NHS doctor. You could even be one of the eight million who watched Ben Whishaw play him in the BAFTA-nominated drama of the same name last year, or you might have been lucky enough to go and see him work live as a stand-up. 
Growing up in a family of doctors in London, he followed the family's well-trodden path into medicine and secured a job as the junior doctor. But the realities of the role took their toll, both physically and emotionally. And as a means of processing the experiences he was facing day in, day out on the wards, he started performing stand-up comedy, reading extracts from his diaries from his time in practice at the Edinburgh Festival. Inadvertently, making people laugh was a very powerful antidote to the stresses of his day job. But it wasn't until he left medicine altogether and had established himself as a comedy writer that he found the time to write This Is Going To Hurt. Then its follow-up, Twas The Night Shift Before Christmas, and now the third volume of his diaries that's both a prequel and a sequel called Undoctored, the story of a medic who ran out of patience. He now lives in Oxford with his husband James, a television producer, and has become a very powerful voice for junior doctors, advocating for better conditions for them, as well as a greater understanding of the challenges they face. This summer, you can catch him live across August at the Edinburgh Fringe at The Pleasance in his show, Undoctored, This Is Going To Hurt More. I can't wait to talk to him. Let's dial him up. It's Adam Kay. How are you, sir? I'm all right. How are you, Kate? I'm good. I'm good. I mean, as far as my doctor's notes goes, were they on fleek, on point? <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was lovely. Yeah, sort of. Uh, you got me, got me thinking right back to that, back to the wards, and thinking about um, my former colleagues who are now um, now doing exactly the same thing that inspired me to get this is going to hurt down on paper last time striking for their pay and conditions and um which makes it slightly depressing that you know nothing has changed in you know six seven years and in fact I suspect things are an awful lot worse than they ever have been on the wards I mean yes because this book was written (laughs) pre-pandemic pre-Brexit both of those things have had a huge impact on the conditions in which we expect junior doctors to work it turns out that I worked in the good old days. It didn't feel like it at the, <laughs> at, the, at, the, at, the at the time when I was, you know, I was, I was earning less than the parking meter and I was, you know, working 97 hour weeks and, you know, coming home from every shift covered in, you know, bodily fluids and falling asleep at the wheel. But um, after COVID, uh, after the worst of COVID, because of course it's still here, um, and within a huge crisis in recruitment and retention of staff it means that the people who are working on the wards these days are often doing two three people's jobs at at once and uh which is an unsustainable place to be you can you can do two people's jobs for a bit if you're covering someone who's away on holiday or covering maternity leave whatever it is as long as you know that on this point in the calendar I can go back to doing one person's job at the moment if you work in the NHS you're doing more than one person's job and not only is that person never coming back to work but every single week more and more people are are leaving because it's an unsustainable um place to place to work and um I I worry that the the powers that be don't quite realize how how serious this is and more importantly, how serious, how much more serious it's going to be and unless unless the tune changes. Which is where I think your first book and your subsequent um, ongoing conversations around this have been so helpful to junior doctors because the government's spin on this was 
it was all about money. And you, from the get-go, were going, it's not. This is unsustainable. Nobody goes into medicine for the money. Uh, exactly in fact, right, by the time yeah. you've qualified to work in medicine, you are knee-deep in debt uh, for the privilege of being able to go and work for less than the parking meter at the hospital you work at generates by way of income. And you've been able to humanise that narrative. Um, I'm, I've been very lucky through this book that it's given me quite a loud voice because historically doctors have had quite a, a quiet voice and uh, certainly the first wave of strikes you know a bunch of years ago that uh, that sort of led to this is going to hurt coming out the government was saying oh the doctors are being greedy and the doctors were saying we're not we're not being greedy um this is a patient safety issue if this this doesn't get sorted out and um and the government have a much louder voice than doctors. And so, but this book meant that I had a platform and there were people who were interested in me going on their, you know, in their, their TV shows and their radio shows and their podcasts to say, this is what it's like. And, and you're, very, you're very right to mention student debt. That's, um, that's in fact something that is, that is um, newer than my time in medicine. Um, my debt was about... £20,000, which is, you know, it's obviously a huge chunk of money, but at the same time, nothing compared to doctors qualifying. Today, I've been seeing on Twitter, people have been sending their, their student loan statements. They're qualifying with debts of over £100,000. I mean, three years at uni for a bog standard degree, if such a thing, if I can call it such a thing, um, you're looking at 50 grand, right? That's three years of study. So and five or six years for... Study is yeah. Five or six years, it's, so it multiplies up, and it's not like America where you where you're walking into these huge salaries. The when I qualified as a doctor, I was earning twenty five percent more in real terms than doctors who qualify today, and I absolutely wasn't twenty five percent better than them. I was twenty five percent worse than them. I'm sure. But also, let's point out, you weren't well off. No, you, no, no, you, you no. Were flush was, with that cash. There were, were no, you? there were no Ferraris uh, involved. The, you know, Michelin stars did not feature on my on my menu, um, <laughs> and um, and all the doctors are asking for, which doesn't feel like it, it couldn't be. It couldn't be any more reasonable. They're asking for restoration of their salary to be just what it was. And look, it's the NHS's seventy fifth birthday this year. The NHS isn't buildings and it isn't bedpans and it isn't MRI machines. It's people. 1.1, 1.2 million people who work there and falling. It's one of the biggest employers in the UK as, as well, isn't it? The biggest employer in the UK. Um, but who knows how long it will be for because people are leaving because they cannot justify staying because it's taking a toll on them that's too tough and they can't manage doing all these people's jobs and their employer don't even give them the, the dignity of allowing them to have, allowing them their pay to remain the same. It has to fall in real terms. So, and if too many people leave, then is the NHS going to have another 75 years, another five years even? I, I don't know the answer to that question. It's a crisis. It's a real crisis in recruitment and retention of staff. And 
either the government sees this and doesn't care or doesn't see it and are walking off a cliff. I think I think they can see. <laughs> I, I, I fear I fear you're right. And if the, if the pandemic didn't teach us the true value of the NHS, then um, then then some might suggest we're being governed by clowns. Um, <laughs> talking of which, um, <laughs> you're taking, I mean, you're taking this as a subject matter back to where it all began this summer. From the 2nd to the 28th of August, you've booked a very, very big venue in Edinburgh. Well, it's a prestigious venue, the Pleasance. And you're you're running how many shows there across the festival? Oh, it must, um, I don't know, it must be something like 25, 26 shows. So by, by the end, I should yeah. have it. I should have it right, shouldn't I? Yeah, let's hope so. Practice makes perfect, Doctor. But um, how do you make this stuff funny? Especially when people, everybody that you talk to about this is invested because everybody relies on the NHS. So it's a very different it's a very different and unique place you find yourself as a comedian with a mic in hand, isn't it? It's it's an interesting one. I use the comedy really to to trick people, I think, and to find an audience who probably wouldn't go to a show that talks about, you know, that the state of the of the health service, but do want to listen to silly, disgusting, uh, weird, whatever stories um, from uh, <laughs> from medical school and and working on the wards and whatever. Um, and so I, I I bring people in, whether it's into my shows or into my books, with the promise of humour, which I hopefully deliver. But I like it certainly you when do. I go to a show if it's made me laugh, that it's also made me think a bit. And that's what I always try to do with, uh, with, with my audiences. And um, so far it's, uh, it's, it's worked. I've tried, I've, I've been trying the show out and it's, um, I think it's nice to have a blend of these, of these different, different things. And it's sort of, as well as being sort of silly and funny, it can be a celebration of the NHS, which is, to my mind, our greatest achievement as a nation. You're so right in as much as you you lure people in with the funnies, you know, the guy that comes in to have a remote control removed from his backside uh, passage or so on and so forth. But the stuff that I wake up thinking about, having spent the weekend with my nose firmly in your books, is the fact that our doctors don't get the same level of psychoanalysis and support on certainly at any point in their career actually than a tube driver or a love island contestant yeah that was a that was an analogy i i drew and i'm um just the the idea that you're more supported on a reality tv show which of course you should be everyone should have this level of support it's you know it's uh, no denigration to love island which i love um but uh it's... no but you know junior doctors are sleep deprived making life and death decisions they need that support more than anyone you could argue i you could you would absolutely argue that and you'd be you'd be right to argue that for some reason the stigma surrounding mental health in doctors is probably 10 or 20 years behind the way we approach mental health in in the rest of our our lives the way that almost everyone else does and um to the to the extent that i mean this is and this is the most awful statistic um one uh, doctor in the uk takes their life every 3 weeks and in, to the extent that, you know, 
I'm not, I don't know if it's almost every doctor, but you know, most doctors know someone or have worked with someone that has taken their life. And that should be, you know, a national headline every time it happens. It, sh- it should be an outrage. It should be the NHS's top priority. How do we stop this happening? But such is the stigma around mental health that it gets brushed under the, the carpet. Such mm. is the stigma around mental health that it's only in the last few years that medical schools have actually even started talking to doctors-to-be about how they will cope during the bad days. If you support someone who's had, you know, an an awful traumatic day, it it will cost a bit of money, you know, giving them the support. It might cost the organisation some money and giving them a week or two off. But that is the best possible investment in that person because they're much more likely to be able to continue to do their job. If there isn't that support, they will continue. They'll work for another week, month, year. But eventually it will accumulate and they will burn out or they'll realise they, they can't go on mm. any anymore. And, you know, most organisations realise this, but the NHS is, is slow to get it. It's, it's shocking, really, because it is a false economy. If nothing else, it stacks up as a bad, bad exercise in business, doesn't it? It really you know, does. It, it really just does. makes more sense to invest because the, what you recoup is of way more value to the business, and by business I mean the National Health Service, uh, that you're trying to, to support. It's just, yeah. yeah. And yet, I mean, I know that you try to show this in all its warts and awful glory uh, with the BBC drama, and, and you really did bring so much of that to life, the chaos, the confusion, the fact that a doctor is just a human being, that we've got to stop seeing the uniform before we see the human being that fills it. What was it like watching yourself being played uh, by an actor, by the brilliant Ben Whishaw, um, but also to have your husband executive producing it as well? <laughs> um, I mean, I was really, really proud of the TV show, um, of all the cast, you know, Ben and Ambika, who played Shruti, I thought was absolutely phenomenal and a, a huge, great cast of giant talent and the and the talent off screen the you know our directors Lucy and Tom and all the producers and the sound and the design and the editing and um um and it's been it's been wonderful seeing so many of those departments um getting nominated and awarded you know various gongs in the last few weeks and months um it was it was a real privilege having the chance to write it for telly and I firmly centered it on that exactly what you were talking about the you know the the mental health because I thought if the hospitals aren't going to talk about it then I can get this into what ends up being 8 million homes and then that makes it an unavoidable talking point and um I thought Ben in particular I think he's the most phenomenal actor you know I I I didn't see him as playing me because the the version I wrote of my character was so different to, you know, to make the the story work the way I wanted it to. I had to, had to turn him into something a bit, uh, a bit more extreme and turn everything up. Um, Cartoon him up. uh, I don't think Ben, yeah, but I don't think Ben can play a cartoon because he always 
finds the truth and the heart and the real in what he does. Mm. But some of the some of the situations we made very extreme. We made a lot of um, the decisions that he uh, he made as a as a character really really bad ones with sort of with quite severe consequences. Um, so he yes. ended up in front of the in front of the beak, um, about to you know potentially lose his job as as a result of it. Um, um, but yeah, it was extraordinary to see such an amazing actor at work. And what's it like having my husband being my boss? Uh, okay, <laughs> I'm saying okay because he'll probably <laughs> listen to this. <laughs> well, what I loved. Because as alongside watching the drama, I was reading Undoctored. So I'm finding out kind of what happens next. James is a very, James was, is, is punching big time in his career, right? So this is your husband. He ran BBC Studios at an incredibly young age. He's produced huge, sat as an executive producer on huge shows like Great Game of Thrones. But when you two met, you were, I mean, not in that place. You were living in a bedsit. You were both unproven in your new, you know, certainly in your new profession. And look how far you two have come together, only to end up having him execing your life story. That's <laughs> that's quite a unique strain to put on any marriage. It's been it's been really really nice to be honest. Um, we, you know, we were starting out in our respective careers at the at the at the same time, and uh, working mm. in the you know the most junior rungs of television as a as a writer or a producer. It's not particularly glamorous. You're scrabbling around for work, and um, um, we've hopefully supported each other along that journey. I mean, for the vast majority of the journey. Uh, it was him supporting me financially uh, because he was a lot more successful than I was, um, and now it's it's nice that we've you know we we we've both found a bit of success in our in our different corners of um, of the of the media. A bit. And it's been yeah, it's been yeah, we've been a bit. We've been you very... are a literary sensation. <laughs> we've been. I've. I've, I've you are, and Game of Thrones was a game changer in television. So. You're more than a little bit successful. I think that 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 bedsit that you found yourselves living in—you've uh, come an awful long way, metaphorically and on every other level, uh, from those days. And you seem to have, um, yeah, you seem to have climbed the mountainside together. Really, that's that's nice. That would be my observation. But obviously, I, I, what do I know? Which one's Richard and which one's Judy in this professional <laughs> marriage? <laughs> I think we're. I think we're more um, Giles and Mary from Gogglebox. <laughs> I love it, but the marriage has survived, and um, the, the drama is available on iPlayer for anybody that hasn't seen it. I would encourage you to do so. It's wonderful. Okay, I've tried to put together three thought-provoking questions for you, Adam. There's so much I wanted to ask you that. You know, frankly, three is not enough, but it's going to have to suffice. Um, so are you ready to dive into the first one? Let's do it. Actions often speak louder than words. And that was certainly true for you on the day that your dad took you up into the loft of your childhood home and literally showed you 
how much he loved, cared and was interested in you, despite struggling to ever really show it. So can you tell me more about that moment and how his curated museum of your life and those of your siblings shifted your perspective on your childhood, certainly as you revisited it to write about it in your books? After leaving uh, medicine, uh, I found myself uh, uh, living living with my parents for... Uh, from 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 time to time, uh, it's weird going back to your to your parents. Uh, no, it's no one's ideal situation. Uh, it's, 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 no, especially. I mean, you 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 were divorcing. It was yeah. You just left your marriage. You'd left your profession, and there you were having to kind of you know live in amongst their disappointment. Yeah, I'd. Uh, we're not a family of talkers and huggers and thoughts and feelings um so um i was i was there and it was announced um that um yeah, there were some various boxes he wanted me to 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 dispose of of my stuff and i was like all right what's this and so um went up into the the loft and he had uh basically never thrown a single thing away relating to my life or those of my uh, three siblings. Every single piece of homework, every, um, you know, programme from a school concert we'd been in, absolutely everything was was up there. And um, I, um, I went through... I mean, I went through some of the boxes. Uh, you know, a lot of the boxes just end up in the skip because, you know, that was just too much. Um, and um, particularly stuff from medical school that I'd, I'd, uh, I, I'd left, at, left at his house. And um, it did bring back a lot of um, memories, just like weird things like the, um, the, the, the student rail card that I had when I was at at, uh, at at medical school, and I had this this terrible um, terrible blonde frosted tips, um, and um, <laughs> which I'm now used as the author photo. I think it's the author photo in the back of uh, Undoctored. That ter- a terrible photo, and and like just for instance, that ended up becoming a chapter in Undoctored because those were the frosted tips that I cut off in a, um, in a hospital ward. I mean, your dad, your dad taking you up into the loft that day, really, A, it gave you most of the material for the third volume of your memoirs, but also it gave you um, probably like the biggest hug in terms of showing you how much he cared about you, even though he struggled sometimes to evidence that it didn't always feel tangible did it in in terms of the way you wrote about your childhood i people care in different ways don't they and um Mm. everyone wants the best for their their children obviously it goes without saying and for my parents the best was going into an inverted commas sensible job and Mm. You know, as a as an immigrant Jewish family, um, there are an acceptable list, I think, or certainly were, of jobs that you should aspire to go into. You should be 
the doctor, the lawyer, the accountant, the architect, the civil servant, you know, what, whatever it is. And um, somehow uh, light-hearted Gagsmith uh, wasn't, wasn't, on the, wasn't on the list. And nor Not on the was, list. <laughs> nor was, in fact, one thing I enjoyed most uh, at school, which was playing music. And so I was maybe strong-armed is too strong a word, but certainly very uh, heartily encouraged um, to go into into medicine. And you know, we were talking about the you know the retention of medical staff. In order to retain staff, medicine is a job that you have to go into with your eyes wide open. It has to be a job that you one hundred percent fully consent. And consent means knowing the good and the bad. If you're ever having a procedure done, the form says, this is why we are doing it, and these are the risks. And I think anyone going into medicine needs to know both sides of that coin. And um, Mm. uh, I'm not sure I was given both sides of that coin. I think I've now helped other, potentially helped other people considering medicine to see both sides. I've had the odd person um, complain that their son, daughter, grandchild, nephew, niece, whatever, wanted to be a doctor at some point and then uh, read my book and no longer want to be a doctor. And the answer to that is good, because if that book's going to put you off medicine, then the job itself is really going to put you off medicine. And I don't think even another passage that you included in Undoctored which again, um, A, opened your eyes to the realities of, of the job, but B, also the realities of your father's existence. As, as part of your medical school training, you have to go and live and work for two weeks with a practising GP. And it made you understand why your dad came home and had very little to say, um, because he was just exhausted. He'd given the best of himself to his patients all day. Um, and you really got an insight into what it was to walk in his shoes, didn't you? I did. It was, uh, at the time, it seemed to make no sense to me why, uh, rather than just popping to, um, you know, popping to a local GP in working hours and, you know, and, and seeing what they did, why there would be this residential aspect where you would you would go and live with um you know a family or, or whatever the setup was this was a this was a guy who who lived on his his own um that i um that i stayed with i have never seen anyone work harder in their life than this gp and again we're in good old days territory because there are now fewer gps uh, than there ever have been. There are more patients per GP, patients per surgery than there ever have been. This guy would turn up early, and it's like in those, like in those films where there's a training sequence because you're becoming a cop, and you're in this firing range, and then all of these like cardboard figures come flying out towards you and you have to shoot the, the baddies with their swag bags and you have to leave the pedestrians who are sort of holding their, their hands up and they're coming so fast and so fast and so fast. That was what it, it felt like. Um, he was having a matter of minutes to see these patients and every single time working out, is this person fine or is this person really sick? you know, what's the right thing to do? And it's such a, an exhausting skill. I mean, I, I realised at that moment that, I mean, 
I, I enjoyed this guy's lifestyle. I, you know, I went, I went to this, I went to the house in a nice village and I could start to see myself with a dog and, you know, wandering around the park and everyone calling me a doctor and stuff like that. I thought, oh, that's quite an... But the, the actual job itself yeah. was so, so tough. And, um, and it's clearly what my, what my dad experienced. He, he worked in a, in a different environment. He worked in, uh, in a very deprived um, part, of, part of London for, for 40 years. And I can understand why you would come home and just be like you know, zipped up, which is, which is also what, what I did. And it's probably what most doctors do. You don't talk about mm. it when you, when you get back home. It's funny, isn't it? It's, it all kind of, it all goes 360. It all goes back to the same thing. People need to be better supported right from the get-go. They need to have their eyes open to the realities of this incredibly demanding role. And, you know, I started this question with actions speak louder than words. The fact of going to live with that GP for a week, the act of doing that spoke louder than anything your dad could have told you about the realities of his existence as a GP. Yeah, I think, I think that's... Uh... I think that's absolutely, um, absolutely right. Um, I um, it was, it was, uh, and it was, it was a, it was a very interesting couple of weeks for for another reason. The um, the doctor in question um, had a very uh, particular attention to detail when it came to cleanliness, and I, as a guest in his house, had to. Had to go along with this so it involved wearing special socks when i was socks. inside so that my uh, my my horrible socks didn't uh, didn't didn't get any dirt on the on the carpet and it involved you know, wiping down a, a door handle once you've used it and maybe it was you know this doctor's way of getting some order in his um in his his life when work was so chaotic anyway there was there was one day um, and I, and I, I did a good job of sort of keeping his pristine home as pristine as I as I could. There was one day though, um, <laughs> I went to I went to the pub uh, to sort of to sensibly do some do some revision because you know you've always got exams around the corner at, at medical school and so I sat I sat there and then the um, the I had a glass of wine and then the the landlord came over and he said he asked me if I was working with the you know with this GP I said yeah yeah I was and he said what a great guy the GP was which he was and um and he he gave me a bottle of wine and then the wine kept flowing it's the least he could do and I was like wow I mean this this was potentially the point where I thought <laughs> I quite like this existence the, the free wine part and then I, the revision, you know, <laughs> took took a took a turn at some point, and I don't really remember the quantities involved. But I went up to um, I went I went I went back there and did all the special socks and upstairs, and I went into bed. And bed was spinning quite badly. I hadn't really eaten anything. The food options weren't great. It was like a sort of a, a co-op cheese and onion sandwich was the only vegetarian thing on offer in this village, and. Um, <laughs> and I had the awful realization that I was going to I was going to be sick, and this was the wrong house to be sick in because it was like it was like a museum. So, um, but I thought, you know, I'll just be I'll go to the toilet and I will put my head deep in the bowl and I will do like a CSI clean up afterwards of any anyway. So there are a couple of a couple of bursts of, of vomiting, but my head was so, my nose was basically touching the water. It all stayed in the bowl. 
and then I, I thought I was clear, I thought I was totally out of the woods after two. Um, and then there was a third round and it was the strongest yet. And I don't quite know how this happened. I imagine the overall rise in pressure uh, in my entire body not only forced the... Um, I'm sorry, everyone's, I, everyone's meant to be drinking this with a glass, listening to this with a glass of wine. This may, this may be off-putting for the wine. Um, as well as the vomit but you coming You had drunk out. all the wine by this point, hadn't yeah, you? Yeah, okay. <laughs> but, uh, there was a, there's no nice way of saying this. There was a jet of diarrhoea at the same time, which shot across, oh! the, um, shot across the room. And uh, the, thing, the thing it mostly destroyed was a, a polar bear white plush bath mat and um so i didn't really have a plan at this moment um uh so i wrapped the i, and I sort of bundled the bath mat up to take to my room by this point it had uh it had made enough noise that it had woken um the doctor up who came into the hallway and saw me naked holding a bath mat covered in shit and um we didn't speak about that. Um, but then again, as discussed, doctors don't like speaking about difficult matters, do they? Oh, my God. This man had been so hospitable in bringing you into his life. And yes, yeah. It doesn't, doesn't reflect well on me. Uh, so I, I guess I'm asking, I'm asking for forgiveness. <laughs> Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This 
This week's episode is brought to you by British Airways Holidays and Las Vegas. Yeah, Vegas, baby. British Airways Holidays offers the full package there, including flights and hotels to suit all budgets with a 24-hour helpline, generous baggage allowance and all bookable with a low deposit. With so much to see and do, both on and off the strip, Las Vegas is the ultimate holiday destination. Now, of course, there's a famous saying, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That's not entirely true, though. Certainly not for the next four minutes, because both myself and one of my best mates have been to the world-famous Las Vegas. Sadly, not together, although that was originally the intention. So let's dial her in and find out what happened for Tamsin Althwaite when she touched down in the desert. Hello, babe. Hello. Isn't it sad that I wasn't on that trip? Do you know what? It really is. So let me just establish, right? We're talking about Vegas and how you can have a multitude of experiences there. So I went on a girl's trip that you were supposed to be on. It was Nicole Appleton's 40th birthday. But what about your trip to Vegas? Who did you go with? It was very, very much the opposite of how you imagine Vegas. So I went with an ex-boyfriend of mine many, many years ago, and we hadn't known each other very long. And we got there and I slowly realised that this was not going to be the person to experience Vegas with. He soon realised exactly the same thing. And How many days in was this? We were only there for three days. So this was oh, right. pretty much as soon as we got there. And right. <laughs> I, I think he realised at the same time. And he then got suspiciously quite ill and needed to stay in bed for the whole time. And I thought, I'm not going to stay in the room at the Hard Rock Hotel. I am going to go out and have a Vegas experience on my own. Neither of us obviously wanted to be around the other one. (laughs) This is a disaster, but brilliant. I tell you what did surprise me about Vegas was the amount of choice that's on offer there. You know, there's museums in Vegas. There's the old town of, you know, part of Vegas where I loved exploring. I was quite carried away with the romance of it. I think that everyone has an idea of Vegas. What I didn't realise was just how much talent and how many different things there were to see and do there. I mean, it made me, it actually made me want to go there and be in a show. Did it? Yeah. We saw so many shows. We ate the best food. I mean, the food there. food. What people don't understand on a food level is some of the best chefs in the world are working out of Vegas. Well, yeah, I, I, that's how I felt about the performers. Some of the best performers, some of the best singers. Yeah. But a great way to do it now, I think if I was to go back now, I'd go and do four days of back-to-back entertainment in Vegas and then shoot out to one of the brilliant spas that they've got in the desert there now. And, yes. I mean, those, those desert spas are next I love it's that. total uh, white lotus territory. Shall we do that? Shall we do that? Do the spa at the end, so you arrive, yeah, um, and you do Vegas, and then you retreat to the desert to a lovely retreat. Yeah, that would be great. So we could land, go and see loads of shows, eat all the food, walk the streets, not really sleep because there's too much to do. Yeah, see loads of entertainment, and then just go and lie down like lizards, and just lie down in the beautiful heat, being pampered. <sighs> see people would never think that Vegas could be a health spa destination. 
So whether it's live entertainment on the strip, heading out to amazing restaurants to eat your body weight in fine food, beautiful sights all across Nevada, or brilliant shopping opportunities, all made better, may I say, by British Airways. Holiday's 23 kilogram baggage allowance per person. There are millions of things to do on your next trip and, well, only one place to do them. Explore Las Vegas with British Airways holidays and experience all it has to offer for yourself. Secure your holiday with a low deposit from just £75 per person at ba.com forward slash Las Vegas. That's ba.com forward slash Las Vegas. At all protected, T's and C's apply. Are you ready for your next question? I am. You are known for the phrase, this is going to hurt. And in Undoctored, you share some really difficult moments and chapters from your life that you've spoken about, um, agonising over whether or not to include. I think there were certain chapters that came in and out of the book. And understandably, because you cover off in this, this third book, you cover off your experience of rape, your experience of eating disorders, of divorce from your wife, and your subsequent marriage to James. So which chapters of the book did you have to think long and hard about sharing? And why did ultimately you go for the pain option of, of including them? Because ultimately sharing that information, the gains are for other people. It's, it's a very painful thing for you to have to sit here and discuss having questions like this put to you. But you know that somebody else may find help in that, right? I, th- I, th- I think that I think, I think you've, 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 you've answered it precisely. It's the thought that if one person gets something positive from a chapter that was hard for me to write, then it was worth me doing. And like talking about my disordered eating, which was a, a really big part of my medical school and mm. and and then and and since. Um it was so personal and the book would have been fine without it I mean it's not the book doesn't hang on it but I can't even say that it was it it was good for me to write I mean something some difficult things I've written about you know I felt better for having written it chapters like that were painful to relive you know embarrassing humiliating painful um but I sort of knew in my heart that some people would read it and might do what I didn't do at the time and get some actual help and uh wonderfully I mean not wonderfully because it's you know this is people who have, have suffered and have been ill and are still ill um but wonderfully for me lots of people have written to say that reading what I had to say gave them the was the catalyst for them to go and seek help be you know make the first appointment with a a GP or contact a a counsellor or or speak to a friend or speak to their partner about it and I and I'd like to think that hopefully they found the the help they needed and and managed to you know to to uh to, to to you know move 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 forward from that um, on, a, on a long and difficult journey. Also, Adam, I think, you know, uh, and I say this as the mother of a 14-year-old boy, I don't think it's ever been harder to be a young person, male or female, or however you identify when it comes to your body image and people's ability to comment on it so readily. Um, for, for the 
constant demands to share imagery of yourself that we didn't have growing up. I, I think it's really important as a conversation opener amongst men because there is so much disordered eating around men and the expectations from to have these ridiculous Love Island style bodies, which are frankly unhealthy. I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. And I really feel for people growing up in this image centered environment. I like mm. there were there are there's almost no pictures of me from from back then pre Facebook pre Instagram to the extent that I'm using a using an old uh, travel card picture as my author photo from uh, from back then. Um, it's interesting you say men. I would say the two biggest groups of people who've been in touch, and I mean this, you know, in their dozens and dozens, have been men who. Uh, who identified with some of the stuff I, I said and had struggled mm. to speak to anyone before. And also uh, healthcare professionals of all descriptions and of uh, men and women. Um, because, and, and that ties into what we were talking about earlier about the stigma of mental health. You know, I, I write in that chapter, you know, about being at medical school and um, knowing that something was very, very up and, you know, other people having found out about what was, what was, what exactly was, was going on with me and begging me to, to go and get help, but still not getting help because a part of me thought I would somehow end up struck off as a doctor for, mm. uh, for having an eating disorder. And it doesn't make any logical sense because does it make sense that you'd be struck off as a doctor for having an illness? Because, you know, mental illness, physical illness, just an illness in a part of your body. And it's the stigma, though, isn't it? It's the stigma. And it was so powerful and so it ran so deep. And I believed it so much that I didn't get help at that at that time and still even though we're in more enlightened times there are doctors and nurses and midwives mm. radiographers radio you know every everyone who's been in touch with me saying i'm afraid of what will happen but all that will happen i know is that it, it will all be positive you can only get get better you're so right and you're right not you know all of the difficult chapters that you included the book would have succeeded without those. But I would say that your contribution, I mean, you'll never, you'll never be able to measure it unnecessarily, but your contribution on those, those topics will help others inordinately, especially around the complexities of somebody coming out of a, a marriage, as you did, to a woman, to then trans, transitioning to a marriage with a, with a man, and all of the complexities that sit around that, the stigma that you felt around that, um, and wrapped in amongst all of that, a horrible sexual assault that you thought, well, did I, did I put myself in, the line, in line for that? Which, of course, you didn't. You know that. But I, I think you raised some really valid questions. And they must have been very hard for you to put to the page, let alone to hit publish. Yes, that was, a, that was, a, that was particularly difficult uh, for very obvious reasons. And... I just wanted to get down on paper how I felt at the at the time because those feelings I had at the time were what stopped me um, a getting help and mm -hmm. b um, going to the authorities about it and um, um, I'm 
I I would say I enjoy enjoy is the wrong word, but I I've got I've 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 got I think quite good in my writing at you know dissecting my my feelings and working out why I'm thinking something and I and I I thought that potentially by digging into those feelings I had at the at the time that it might possibly resonate with other people who have been through um similar experiences I am shocked I mean absolutely dumbfounded by the number of people who've who've been victims of sexual assault and a number of friends of mine have since opened up to me about their own similar experiences and it's and it's heartbreaking well you know what it is because but silence is enabling isn't it so by talking about it by by percolating this conversation that in itself is massively helpful because you realize like you know just the fact that you've shared this means that other people have come to you and gone yeah me too and you realize you're not alone yes every step of sharing has has a benefit to you and others it must be very freeing in some ways as difficult as it was to have it out there it, I mean, it has been for sure. It has been for sure. It was the the initial um, writing of it, publishing of it was was very difficult. To be honest, talking about it still is 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 is, is difficult. How could how could it not be? But I'm glad to talk about it because there will be people listening to to this who will hopefully, you know, you know think about speaking to someone and uh and once again you know it's it's so scary the concept of speaking to someone about it but ultimately you you don't get better by keeping things inside even though your brain is tricking you that that's the that's the path you should follow it's never the right path is to keep it to your to yourself but I'm glad it's out there I would implore anybody that feels that this has touched a nerve in any way or it resonates with them, go and read the book. Read it in its full context because even talking at length on a podcast, we can't we can't do it the justice that context can so that people can fully understand what your experience has been. And I don't, and I don't want to try and reduce it into something that's a soundbite, but I applaud your bravery. And as difficult as it is to share these things, think how difficult it is with the consequences of not sharing. And that's, you know, it takes us back to what we were talking about, how many people take their own lives as a result of an abuse like this. And by opening up and sharing and talking about it and realising you're not alone, um, in some in some ways, you're still carrying out pretty much life-saving work, Doctor. There's a, um, there's a huge gulf between the value of the arts and the value of the Doctor on labor board mm. my overriding feeling whether it comes from guilt or whatever since leaving medicine is to try and sort of use my powers for for good rather than evil and whether that's using my sort of my loud voice to amplify um the the voices of junior doctors or by writing about stuff to a hopefully big audience that that can um, that can g- 
give the odd person a bit of a bit of hope or or, or an idea about a direction to turn in. That is the the single most meaningful thing for me in my in my new job, and it means more the idea that the odd person uh, might gain something personally from it. That means more than any of the facts and figures about you've sold this many copies in 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 Poland or this TV company is doing that thing with that book um that that's that's what it's that's what it's about okay time for our third and final question elaborate lies let's go there because you've documented many over the course of your books um but one of the very best I loved was Luke your imaginary agent Luke I've got the name right haven't I you have, yes, absolutely. Although with an imaginary agent, it doesn't really matter what their name is. So I'd hit a stumbling block in my career. I wanted to be a writer. I was sure I should be a writer. Unfortunately, um, the people who employed writers in television weren't so sure that I should be a writer, and I just wasn't getting the wasn't getting the work. And uh, a, one of the big things you have to do to be taken seriously, which certainly was was back then, I don't know if it is now, is you, you have to have an agent who can you know, fight your corner, put you forward yeah. for stuff that's somehow, you know, that, I don't know. Well, it speaks a, of quality, doesn't it? It, it does. It just you're, says you're, that you've got a certain standing. Yeah. You do, yeah. This, this agent believes that I'm good, so they're going to... Anyway, uh, I wrote a lot of letters to, uh, emails to agents, and uh, no... No one really wanted to, to have me, which was fair enough. I mean, at the time, my writing was absolutely terrible and I'd basically done none of it. So I thought, you know, what I, what I, need, is a, what I need is a fake agent. And all you need for a, for a fake agent is, uh, is an email address. And so, uh, and so I, I, was, I was my own agent. Um, but so people would email Luke... Yes. But really, they were emailing you. And then you also had the ingenuity of coming up with the name of some woman from accounts who would oh, occasionally yes. change, sort of... chase invoices for you. And it was... I would say that at that time in my, uh, in my career, um, I, was, I was spending more time scripting these, uh, these messages from imaginary agents and coming up with, 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 their, with their lives and personalities and character arcs than I was actually doing any, any paid writing. Um, but as with all lies, uh, it came crashing down um, because someone in a production company wanted to, to speak to Luke, uh, which, was a, which was a problem because uh, Luke had a voice very, very similar to, to mine. Uh, had also had a very similar <laughs> phone number to mine. Um, and so they all sort of, sort of put it, can't quite remember what the, the excuses were, but it was laryngitis, and then he's out the country or his tongue's fallen off, whatever it was. Um, but they, they, did want to, they did want to jump on the, on the phone. And then what I had to do then was beg... James, uh, my husband, who's then my then my boyfriend, um, to impersonate, inhabit the character of uh, of Luke, and do and do this do this uh, phone call. Um, 
I mean, he did all right. I don't think he really, really felt Luke's true motivations. Uh, you know, and I think he was his Scottish, you know, his, his Edinburgh accent could have been a bit broader. But anyway, um, but aside from that, uh, uh, I thought that was that, that was the end of that was the end of that particular agent. Because uh, uh, that's the, it's the problem. It's the problem with problem with lying, isn't it? But when do you think it's okay to stretch the truth? And, and where have some of your better lies taken you? Um, I don't... I, th I don't think I'm a particularly good liar. I think that they, they, they generally just sort of embarrassingly unravel at some point. Um, I mean, I've... I thought I was a very good liar. Um... I was lying about my eating disorder um, dozens of times a day to dozens of people, to everyone in my, everyone in my life. And lots of people knew and lots of people, you know, I would, I would make excuses for why I couldn't, you know, eat with my flatmate so I grabbed a sandwich on the way home or why I, I wouldn't come out to the, the the pub or you know you know or it was you know it was a, you know, a Jewish festival that meant I was fasting or whatever it was I had a I had a reason and I thought I was being so clever but um people you know found out in a in a quite sort of dramatic way as it, as it, as it happened you know there, there was there was unequivocal evidence of what was of what was going on with me and um I was I was a much worse liar than I I thought because people already knew and it's uh it's yeah I guess in life people don't generally call you out for lying because it's embarrassing isn't it I'd be you know I'd be too embarrassed to call someone out for lying so I don't so maybe they wander around thinking that they're they're any better at lying than my you know than my three-year-old nephew who's pretending he doesn't have you know chocolate around his mouth yeah oh Adam I've loved talking to you and I know that all of this and more will be covered in the live shows um up in Edinburgh how does it feel to be going back to almost where it all began I mean this is almost 360 isn't it you you started performing there in 2016 in support of junior doctors striking and here we are you're back in Edinburgh junior doctors are striking um I mean I wish yeah. junior doctors I mean, didn't that, have to be striking must... I would I would change that bit about it. Mm. Uh, I wish that the government would yeah. come to their senses, and hopefully by August they they will have done. I'm sure they will have done. They must do surely. But Edinburgh is the most wonderful. I mean, it's the most wonderful city. Full stop. But in August the festival is just a a magical place. It's not without its faults. It has become extremely expensive to both uh, perform at and visit and hopefully something will change with the cost of accommodation it's at risk of becoming exclusive where only people like me who know they can bring an audience you know feel confident coming up and the and the people who are, want to bring up their first show to a room of 30 people are priced out of it. I think that is that needs to change but the the experience of the Edinburgh Festival is absolutely wonderful and I know lots of places say there is something for everyone but there is truly something for everyone whether there really want, is 
whether it's, you want something for your for your four year old, your fourteen year old, or your your ninety four year old, um, whether you want you know ballet, whether you want you know really tough chewy theatre the sort of stuff that uh, that I never um, I never watch or art galleries or for me it's the it's the comedy at the fringe festival there is so much going on literal thousands of different shows to the extent that if there aren't shows that you uh, that appeal to you in the Edinburgh fringe then you just don't have a sense of humour because there are you you have to like some you have to have to there's all sorts of comedy there's thousands of shows it's it's a buffet it really is it's a huge buffet it's a Vegas buffet it's one of these football pitch sized <laughs> buffets with every single possible cuisine and um as much as I'm looking forward to performing, which which I am, I'm more than that. I'm looking forward to seeing shows, not just my friend shows, uh, who I'll obviously uh, feel obliged to see, but going through the, the brochure, going through the website, seeing, thinking, that looks good. Picking up a flyer from someone, thinking, yeah, that sounds good, because that is how you see, um, you see the, the, you know, the, the, the very best comedy there is. The show runs from the 2nd to the 28th at the Pleasance in Edinburgh. Uh, tickets are on sale right now. Um, you can get them wherever you get your tickets or you can visit adamk.co.uk. Adam also has a brand new podcast. It's called The List of Absolutely Everything That Might Kill You. It kind of does what it says on the tin. Check it out. And uh, thank you so much for finding the time to step away from the preparation of the show, the podcast, and I hope another book. Is there another book in the, in the making? There is another book. I'm the one I'm right. The, the, there's always another book. Um, the one I'm finishing at the moment is another kids' book, which has been uh, something we're doing for the last yeah. few years. And then, and then it's time time to go back to grown ups. Um, Adam, continued success in all that you do. Keep using your voice. It's really important, and um, I, it's been a pleasure getting to know you better, both here in the last hour, but also over the last few days um, by kind of literally just burying myself in your writing. Um, I've enjoyed it inordinately. Thank you so much. It's been lovely chatting. My huge thanks to Adam Kay for joining me. You can catch him live at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. He's at the Pleasance from the 2nd to the 28th of August. Tickets are on sale now. Just head over to his website. That's adamkay.co.uk. You can also catch his podcast. It's called The List of Absolutely Everything That Might Kill You and does exactly what it says on the tin. And if you're in the mood for more conversation, well, why not dive into the back catalogue where you'll find authors like E.L. James in there. There's Dr. Alex George talking very much about his experience of mental health help within the NHS. Giovanna Fletcher's there, Richard and Judy who run a book club. Al Murray's in there sharing his own experiences of A, writing a book and B, being encouraged by a doctor to pursue comedy. That doctor was Dr Harry Hill. And don't forget, we've started dropping an extra mini episode every week now on a Tuesday. It's called Something from the Cellar and it brings up some of the very best bits from some of our very best guests over the last four years. To make sure it lands in your feed, just make sure you're following or subscribing to the show. And I'll be back Friday with a brand new guest. Until then, thanks so much for loaning me your ears. White Wine Question Time is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. 
Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Manny's and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant Glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 